Well, hello and welcome to episode 213 of The Cool Room. I'm your host, David Griffiths, welcoming you to what I hope will be a really interesting podcast today. A couple of guests are on and we're going to be talking about the future of the Australian craft brew industry. Uh, it's obviously a fascinating time at the moment. Uh, lots of exciting good things happening, but also some pretty strong headwinds that the industry is pushing up against at the moment. I'm going to be joined both by Daniel Ridd, who's just recently written a really interesting article about the kinds of things you'll be finding in your craft beer fridge if you visit some of your local stores uh, and the changes in uh, in what's being in those stores in particular. And then we're going to have the second part of our interview with Maz that we've recorded out at Hawker's just before New Year's. Um, so look, I really hope you'll be able to, uh, to sit around and enjoy uh, the podcast today. Uh, obviously, help us out if you can. We uh, we talk a bit in the uh, episode about how hard it is to keep things going in the industry at the moment, true of uh, bottle shops, true of breweries, and true of craft beer podcasts. And um, look, if you do want to help us out, you can do that by heading over to our Shopify store, maybe grabbing a T-shirt or a hoodie, or grabbing one of the packs for the recent beer uh, events that we've been doing online. Uh, so we've got great beers from Brayside and great beers from Rambler's Aleworks uh, there as well, which will help you enjoy some of the other podcasts that we've been putting out recently uh, and lots of great merch there as well. Look, the other way that you can help us out is by spreading the word. Um, look, you know, we can't afford to do much advertising, but if you recommend to your friends, uh, make sure that you follow us on the socials, uh, that you've enjoyed this episode, then that's a great way of getting the word out there and we'd really appreciate it if you did that. Look, in a minute we'll get underway with our chat with Daniel. Uh, I found that he had some really interesting insights and, look, as we uh, mentioned a couple of times in the in the episode, uh, I'm a data nerd, he's a data nerd, and the research that he's done and the effort that he's put in uh, is really interesting, and I hope that you'll be able to go and check out uh, his website as well, beerreflections.com.au. Lots of interesting things over there, and uh, in particular, post uh, the episode or post this chat that we had, he's been putting up some of his predictions for, uh, for what's going to be coming out of the Gab's Hottest 100 this year. Uh, so get in amongst that and enjoy all of that. Then we're going to go and have that second part of the interview with Maz. Look, a reminder, uh, first of all, if you haven't listened to the first part, go back a couple of episodes and hear that. That will put things into context. Uh, there's also an episode that we recorded out there last year where we deal with a lot of the basics. And look, how do you introduce uh, a podcast with Maz on it? There are, there are bits in there, uh, first of all, to say where there's a fair bit of swearing, so not one to have in front of the kiddies. I chose not to edit that out, but it's definitely there, and I'll give you the heads up about that. And as ever, look, a really broad range of opinions. Maz, as anyone who's in the Australian craft beer scene will know, is not short of an opinion or two, and why would he be? That's more than fair enough given what he's achieved in the industry. Uh, but worth saying that uh, not necessarily all of the things that he says there, particularly about politicians, uh, but, you know, he was sitting next to one at the time, are things that I would agree with. So but that's not a reason to censor it. That's a reason to have that discussion and put it all out there and you can make your assessments. Uh, and look, again, he really does have some interesting insights, uh, given the scale that he operates at, uh, about where the Australian craft beer industry is at at the moment and the difficulties that it has and what both governments uh, have done to assist and what they could do to assist and where they are, in fact, hindering the industry at the moment. Uh, 
So get out there, enjoy it, tell your friends about it, and let's get underway with the first interview. Well, I'm joined now by Daniel Reed. Daniel and I are going to have a really interesting chat because, well, I'm a data nerd. I've read his blog. He's clearly a data nerd. And we're going to get into some data nerdistry very soon about the kinds of beers you're going to be finding in your local bottle shops, uh, whether they're craft beers or not, and how that's changed over the last few years. But before we get to any of that, let's introduce Daniel properly. And Daniel, I reckon the last time I saw you was in the backyard of the uh, Rifle Brigade Hotel in sunny Bendigo during Bendigo on the Hop. And look, I'm even drinking from my Rifle Brigade tavern uh, tankard from 1994. So there you go. That's a sure sign of how long I've been around. Mate, how are you? And is my memory correct in that? Your memory's spot on. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was... Um... Uh, after we initially met at, um, I'm going to forget the name of the venue now, the one just down the road where you set up um, to do an episode with Chris. And then, um, and I think later on you interviewed Jackie from Co-Conspirators. And, That's exactly right. Yeah. It might have all been done in different orders, but that's how it appeared on the podcast. So go back and check out those Bendigo on the Hop uh, episodes. How did the festival finish up for you? What was it like the day after? Yeah, good. Um, I, as I've gotten uh, a little bit older and a little bit wiser, I'm um, a little bit more sensible these days. I don't tend to have uh, really difficult days the day after. Um, uh, so, yeah, I recovered really, really well from that. Well, that's very sensible. I, I was reasonably likewise. I ducked up the handlebar and um, then had to catch the train home. So, I'd left at a reasonable hour, I've got to say. Look, we're going to be talking all sorts of things, uh, data nerdistry, as I say, in a minute. But any sort of insights you can give us for Bendigo on the Hop this year? It's still a fair way off, but it's a real festival. So just, Bendigo you know, on the Hop's just... turning 10. So we've, we want to make it big. We, we want to, um, yeah, we want to make it the biggest one. We want to expand it. Um, I, I had a committee meeting uh, only just an hour ago with with Chris and Trev, and Alyssa and Penny, um, looking at what we want to do. And um, yeah, we've got some big plans. I can't, um, I can't really. No, no, I don't give away any scoops yet. But, uh, but it is slated for the 31st of August, I can say that much. All right, yeah, that genuinely is helpful given the kind of year that I have coming up. That's going to be something that I put into the diary and look for anyone who, if you're in Victoria, it's a bit of a no-brainer, but if you're coming in from somewhere else, it's one of the best regional beer festivals going around, one of the best uh, beer festivals, full stop, I'd say, and I don't say that just because it's in my old hometown. So, you know, it's a ripper, it's a ripper place to walk around. Great to see a whole range of uh, different venues and often really uh, different breweries that we don't see coming down to the metro area as much. That was my memory of, of last year. Yeah, no, we're definitely really proud of it. And, you know, I've been a committee member with Bendigo Beer since 2019. Um, so uh, relatively new, perhaps you might say, well, maybe not four years, mm. um, but, but obviously with um, um, the happenings of 2020 and 2021, um, things sort of uh, got quite blurry in there. Absolutely. And look, look, that's a little bit of a good segue into talking about your latest blog post. Um, now, beerreflections.com.au is the address that we need to be putting out there to people. That's um, right. How long have you been blogging? Is that even the word that I should be using these days? How do you describe it? Yeah, it's funny you should say that. I, I do tend to describe it as blogging. Uh, I call myself a blogger um, only because I don't... I, 
I'm not comfortable calling myself a writer. <laughs> I haven't written any books or anything of significant note. But I, but by the same time, I, I don't think that blogger perhaps quite does justice to it. Yeah. Um, it's so, really yeah. well and, presented and, other than anything else, can I say? Like, you know, I still think of blogs as something from, you know, 2003, 2005, which was just text heavy. Yours looks really good. It's a very you. You know, nice site to navigate. Well, and the other thing I was going to say was to um, not taking anything away from um, um, from the people that do it, but um, some people who simply write um, stories on their Instagram posts refer to themselves as bloggers. So, it, you know, it, even the, the evolution of blogging over, you know, since uh, the the early days of uh, the first WordPress sites has <laughs> um, changed a lot. Exactly right. Now, how long has Beer Reflections been going for? Um, I would have you been that. reflecting. Yeah. Um, I, I initially, I, I did have like a personal blog that I must have started a good. Actually, I started it when I was at uni studying. Yeah, that's not perhaps as long ago as um, um, as it sounds. I went back to uni when I was thirty. Um, but yeah, right. I started that blog, and it was called Daniel's Beer Blog. And then after a time, and I was I sort of started to write about technology stuff and didn't really do anything with it. Um, and then when I kind of segued um, into the, the beer space. I, I wrote the odd beer story on there. And then when it became more beer focused and because the website had a really awful name, um, <laughs> I, I can maybe get into that later. A, a few people will be familiar with my old handle of DJRXR6, which became more of a mouthful for people than a, um, something to remember. Was that a model of a Ford that came out in sort of 2002 or something like yeah. that? You're spot on with the um uh with where it came from. I needed to see. I really do come from North Bendigo, despite what everyone sort of thinks. Actually, you know. a bit of Ballarat. Um, <laughs> um, but no, I I I think it was a a gamer handle I needed, and I couldn't think of anything clever or anything like that. So I just sort of thought my initials are DJR. I drive an XR6. Let's just call myself DJR XR6, and I kind of just I owned it for a while, but. Yeah, when I got a little bit more serious about the beer blogging, it needed to be something a bit more reflective, uh, pardon the pun. Of and and something that people outside of Australia might understand and something that people outside of the 1990s might understand as well, for that matter. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Beer Reflection's been going on for a while. One of the little projects you have there is what we're really here to talk about, which is your analysis of what craft beers are popping up in I guess we'd describe them as mainstream bottle shops. Yeah. Um, I think when I when Local Lover um, came about, so that's for, for any of the listeners that don't know, that's that was BWS's campaign to um, support, in inverted commas, um, local um, brands or local indie beer brands in their bottle shop in 2020 at the height of COVID. Um and BWS, again, just for overseas listeners, quite genuinely, this is sort of one of the big supermarket-aligned yes. bottle shops. So, yeah, so most yeah, shopping centres would have a, a BWS or equivalent sort of in them in Australia. Yeah, owned by Endeavour Drinks Group, which also, of course, owns Dan Murphy's um, and uh, a number of other um, uh, alcoholic beverage-related businesses. Mm. Yeah, um, so... So I saw this campaign. Um, I just it just felt it felt disingenuous. Um, and so rather than as I have done with some blog 
posts that haven't made it to print uh, because <laughs> with the benefit of reviewing them, rather than just go on a big rant um, full of opinions, um, back it up with some facts and let people decide for themselves. So that's where I came upon the idea to photograph, photograph the fridge, count the brands in there and look at it. Um, and then people could sort of make up their own mind about whether they thought that was problematic or not. And did it back then when you did it for the first time, did it back up what you were thinking or did you, what did you learn out of that first experience before we start to come to the trends that you've seen over time? I think it did. Um, I, I actually, I, I'd have to go back and actually recall what some of my conclusions from that were because obviously the trends that I've tracked even in the following year in 2021 and then last year and then, oh, sorry, the year before last and then to now, it's perhaps a little bit easier to see the trend and make it more of a judgment call on what the individual thinks is going on and how they feel about that. But yeah, I, in that first one, I, I, I don't, yeah, I think I was quite comfortable in what I was um, asserting perhaps in what I was writing. And we reflect on this podcast a lot, particularly when we sort of have brewers returning, we're really lucky to sort of, we've been around for five years, we get, brewers coming and going to sort of see how their story evolves. We reflect a lot at the end of 2023 that times are a bit tougher out there for most people in the craft industry. That's not much of an insight. We can see uh, voluntary administrations going around. We can see venues finding it a bit harder to, to get their money made if they're, if they're craft beer specific venues. What are we seeing in the fridges? What have you noticed in there that sort of backs up or at least sort of give some light into those things about the industry in 2024? There's definitely growth in the Pinnacle Drinks brands. Um, I think that like I, even before I wrote that piece, I started noticing, um, you know, new brands. Um, then there was, honestly, there's, there's something about the packaging. There's something about, particularly for perhaps for people like us, who are pretty familiar with the landscape and the breweries, even when new ones come along, you kind of get a sense of authenticity, um, even if you haven't seen them before. But with some of these, you know, particularly the um, the Colossal Brewing brand, um, there's another brand um, just simply titled X. Um, you know, there was something about them. I was like, hmm, what are these about? And sure enough, I sort of looked into them as I do. Um, and realised that they were made for the bottle shops by um, a subsidiary of Endeavour Drinks Group, which is, yeah, Pinnacle Drinks. So, so really what we're talking about here, one of the big trends is this, what you call white labels, or not just you, what sort of get described as that? Or yeah, of... and that's interesting, actually. I only picked up the term white label from, I mentioned in um, my piece that uh, in a Bruce News interview with Derek Hales, who's the owner and founder of um, uh, Bad Shepherd Brewing, which... Mm. went into voluntary administration this year and then came out. In his interview with Bruce News, he mentioned white label brands. And that was the first time I actually used that term. I'd been calling them faux craft or mainly faux craft um, or, or something like that. But it, it did seem like a much more apt um, label, perhaps given our, I mean, Australians are, you know, of a certain age are familiar with, black and gold and home brand and no frills and and that you know and, and at least two of those their branding was white yep yep <laughs> the obvious exception being black and gold yes. just for anyone who's playing along at home 
Yeah. Well, and that's right. And, and I've got to say, even some of the examples you've got on there, like the, I reckon when I first saw the Zytho brewing, I don't know that I'd immediately twigged that they weren't, um, that they weren't a genuine craft beer from somewhere else. And I guess that's one of the things that we sort of see in a country like Australia, where we get a lot of, we know that there are hundreds of breweries in other states that we don't normally actually see the beers of. Yeah, it's like yeah. oh well, maybe that is from somewhere up in Queensland or New South Wales. There'd be unless you really took the time. Yeah, and you were really into it, and that and that's the key point too. And that's that's I think the key thing that you know people you know avid um, uh, craft nerds and you know the industry take issue with is that difference between black and gold and no frills. Is you knew that they were home brand. Yeah. They were plain as the nose in your face. They, they didn't try and hide it. But there's a definite feeling that the Pinnacle Drinks brands um, and to some extent the um, the retailer brands from Coles, you know, they're not being, um, they are trying to hide it to some extent. Um, again, so it's, not like, it's not like that it's a great evil. This is just sort of capitalism, yeah. isn't it? They're just trying to find a way to flog their beers. Yeah, they are. And that was, and that's, and that's, that's a good point too. Um, I think that, um, also in that interview with Derek Hales and later the very, very recent one with um, Peter from Wayward, mm. whilst they both highlighted this, um, these uh, white label brands, both of them accept that this is business. This, this is this is a natural part of business. And as I said in my article, you know, and as we've already we've already um, said, you know, this this sort of marketing, um, making your own products, is certainly nothing new. It's been around for ages. Yeah, run us through some of those pinnacle drinks. So back in twenty twenty, you've identified four in the fridges, um, but people just give people some of the names that they're most likely to have seen. So, as you said, you've got um, Zitho Brewing. So, actually, I can so in 2020 from my, um, my from my first chart on my website, you've got Zitho Brewing, which is probably the first. Yeah, so Zitho Brewing and X, and they're mm. both in cans, still are, I should say. But you've also got John Boston and Sail and Anchor. Now, they've actually been around for ages, um, much longer, and they're both in bottles. Uh, um, I, I'd have to double check. I don't know that they still both are, but because one of those, so both of them had this very um, little, uh, not little preachers, um, James Squire's feel about the labelling, yeah. at least to me. Well, that um, and I'd also say sort of pseudo-American labelling as well. Like yes, the difference the between that and a Sam Adams or something like that. And I've always sort of presumed that Sail and Anchor was supposed to be Anchor Steam adjacent, I guess, just in terms of yes. if, you, if you didn't really know, if you were just, you know, going in to pick up a six-pack of beers to take to a mate's house, and he liked craft beer. You go, oh, that looks like something so and so drinks. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I hadn't actually um, um, hit on that myself. That's that's um, uh, very uh, very apt. I'd always um, thought that for both the Salem Anchor and the John Boston was supposed to sound like Samuel Adams or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think the, um, the there was also something about the the Salem Anchor which felt a little bit little creatures-esque as well being you know um you know mm. where, where that brewery is located and, yep. and and where it began absolutely so we had we had those four back in 2020 yeah it and certainly then, expands I, from there doesn't it yeah um 
like just the following year, then you, in addition, you've got um, Initial Brewing, um, Culture House, which was a really interesting one um, in and of itself. Um, then that was when Colossal first came on the scene, um, which which seems to be, I see that one online a little bit on in craft beer forums. Um, You're right. Sort of, now whether, whether they're oblivious to its um, uh, roots, uh, I don't know, um, and probably, and it doesn't have to matter to everybody. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that that's one that I I'm, I watch kind of really carefully. In fact, I, I predicted or I suggested I should say that in my um, hottest one hundred predictions piece, not last year but the year before, that we might see some pinnacle drinks brands in the hottest one hundred. Um, there haven't been. I, I'm I'm not um, not overly sad about that. But I thought if there was going to be one, it would be from Castle Brewing. Mm. That's um, yeah, and then you've got Golden Pipes and and Crony, which, yeah, uh, the following year that was pretty much the same lineup. I think one has gone and it's been swapped by Heydays, and then you've got this year where there's there's nine of them: New Dawn, Salamanca, Crony, John Boston, Largo Brewing, Zitho Brewing, Castle Brewing, Golden Pipes Brewing, and Heydays. And I guess just to to make the point explicitly again, this is all in one shop, so it's not just like that these are available sort of online or something like that. This is now, you know, four years ago, there were only four of these these companies, breweries, beers, I should say, in the fridge. And now there's, well, I'm doing the maths. Is it nine or something like that? So we're seeing roughly a doubling. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Nine nine different brands and each with... um... Each with a different number of beers too. I mean, if you look at the Zitho, there are six of them. Yeah. So there's, I think if I recall my count there, there's 21 of them in the fridge, 21 different beers from these eight different brands um, that all look pretty distinctly different. And especially for ones like the Zitho, and again, to sort of say, you know, you know, sometimes for people who are new to it, they'd go, oh, well, these people only make a lager. I wonder if they're the real deal. But when you see six different beers, you go, yeah. oh, you know, that looks like the that looks like the real mob, doesn't it? So there's someone yeah. who's done some clever marketing work, I guess, for want of a better term, around actually helping to make sure there's a that air of legitimacy comes across through that breadth of, of styles that they're, you know, working with. Agreed. Yeah, I, I recall, I don't remember if it's, um, heydays or crony, but one of them is a low carb. Um, and I remember thinking this is, and that appeared around about the same time as better beer. This is a, a you know, an attempt to capitalize on that growing trend. But then it was pointed out to me that, um, obviously, um, Endeavor Triggs Group has an interest in better beer doing well because <laughs> it has, it has exclusivity. Um, and, um, so yeah, it would be unlikely that they'd put that, uh, a home brand up against it and cut their own lunch, but who knows. And I guess the other interesting thing is so people probably wouldn't have been as, you know, aware of brands or companies like Pinnacle, but they they'd know CUB, they'd know Lion Nathan, for instance. How do those guys play in areas like this? They've been really interesting to watch. Um, I do remember um when I wrote that first story, um, because I was very focused on the Pinnacle drink side of things and the independent side of things. Um and 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 you know the the adding um, the CUB and Lion brands was just as an aside. And then someone sort of said to me, what are they going to do about this threat? That's mm. like, hmm, that's interesting, actually. Yeah, because, you know, it, it, the, the, the rise of um, 
the home brands is also a threat to them. How are they going to take it? And uh, Lion, interestingly, they're both actually over the from 2020 to 2023, they've actually both taken uh, opposite paths. CUB um, sort of dipped in 2021 and 2020, uh, 2022, um, and then it's come back to have more brands than it did uh, at the beginning of the study. Uh, and Lion was the opposite. That actually increased, which was um, in part due to their purchase of Fermentum yep. because they obviously immediately acquired uh, three brands that were already in the BWS fridge in Two Birds Fixation and Stone and Wood. Um, but they've the Pacific Ale is the only one left now. Two Birds, unfortunately, as we all know, is, is gone. Um, and there's no fixation beers in the fridge there now at all. I find that fascinating. We're going to have Tom from Fixation on in March, and obviously that's one of the things that we'll talk to him about. But the the two birds bit I find fascinating because they bought a brand with such a clear personality and as an outsider, yeah. Yeah. I would have thought sort of a clear marketing strategy around it. Like it, it wasn't hard to understand what two birds was selling. Yeah. Uh, as a, as a proposition other than just the beers, but to get rid of it so quickly. It's got such an admirable legacy. Yeah. Um, it was really disappointing. Um, but as an aside, I remember um, just on Two Birds, when not long after, so when Anchor Steam sold in the United States, um, there's really great, maybe even the, the, the best um, beer writer in um, out there at the moment. Her name is Kate Bonneau. She wrote this really great article on Anchor Steam um, looking at, um, I, I think she, to sum up the article, there was a brilliant line in there, something about, you know, the people that are lamenting the, the demise of Anchor Steam are lamenting the demise of its legacy. They never bought their beer. Yeah. And, and I kind of felt a little bit like this, there was this parallel with Anchor Steam and Two Birds. People were... Um, you know, don't get me wrong, Two Birds has got its avid supporters, and I'm not suggesting that um, um, that everyone was complacent, but there were certainly people who, who lamented um, the, the, the um, passing of that, passing, what a terrible word to use, the, <laughs> the of, of, that, of that brewery that perhaps didn't have their money where their mouth was. But perhaps to take a step further, though, us craft beer nerds, most of us don't have our money where our mouth is. <laughs> we flip from one brand to the other. And as you know, interesting, you know, listening to the, your last episode when Muzzin talks about people ticking a box, we do have a tendency to do that. Absolutely. Well, when I used to have pubs, and I've said this on the podcast many times, you know, there'd be this bit where someone would come in, you know, they'd been in last Friday, they come in next Friday, and I go, do you want another one of these beers? You know, this is what you loved last week. And someone would look straight past me and go, oh, What's that new thing? And we had to literally sort of have this random wheel where on a Sunday afternoon you'd come in and you'd spend your five bucks or whatever else, spin the wheel to get rid of the last three beers out of last week's stock because what you hadn't sold in the first week or so, you almost weren't going to sell again, even if people loved it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's a very it, troubling Just a sort of remarkable sort of <laughs> remarkable process. Look, we've sidetracked ourselves there. Look, I was the other one I was going to ask about is that there are these craft beer collectives, I guess we'd call them, you know, that, again, you know, people who are into the craft beer scene uh, in Australia would know. Um, 
how have they gone and where are they sort of up to in their in their representation in the kinds of places that you're looking at? Craft beer collectives, um, which are, you know, Mighty Craft, um, Tribe, um, uh, Good Drinks Australia, um, and, and you know, some that weren't, aren't represented. And you've got, um, I think, Vok Beverages from South Australia that, who owns um, Fox Hat and Vale. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've also got that. I can't, uh, I can't recall now what the the group was um, with Wayward and Batch. But so yeah, these craft beer collectives. Is that local in, local drinks? That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, these entities that have um, multiple brands uh, underneath them, they all got they all got very different business models. So yeah, it's you can It's difficult to define them apart from just saying they are collectives. So, so some of them um, have different business models to what the exact same one had a year ago. Some of them have yes. radically evolved their business models. Yes. and even and Fermentum as well. Fermentum was another yeah. um, was another collective um, that we that we just talked about. Yeah, but to answer your question, they're um, dwindling away. Um, I think that um, I wrote in twenty twenty you had. Um, Obviously, you had Fermentum that I mentioned, but, but being um, acquired by Lion effectively, um, uh, you know, doesn't have a presence in the um, the BWS Craft Brew Fridge anymore. Mighty Craft, which in 2020 had a couple of Jetty Road beers um, and um, Ballistic. Um, uh, Ballistic's an interesting one, actually, because I think that Ballistic, that, so the beer that they had was Hawaiian Haze, which, you know, there was something about that that, Beer that grabbed my attention, um, and I predicted that for a big place in the um, the hottest 100 that year, and it did quite well. Um, and I think got in, in, into the um, into the top 10. Um, but perhaps something you know reflecting the um, performance of these craft beer collectives that there's very few of them present in the um, craft beer fridge at this particular BWS at all anymore. You've got um, Jetty Road, which obviously after I wrote this, then yep. was bought by um, uh, a, a private um, entity. Um, I can't remember someone with history in the industry. I don't recall who it was. Yeah, I can't remember. Right, yeah, um, and Gage Roads was the only one left mm. so with single fin. Um, but single fin was actually cons- has been consistent across all four years. It's always been in that fridge, single fin, which you know for. Um, uh, West Australian brand. Yeah, it's fascinating that that one's. You, you wonder whether there's just a couple of locals who really, really love it. It's actually it's a nice beer. I remember yeah. um, I remember having it um, in the lead up to um, to Christmas. I bought um, a couple of four packs to leave at my mother in law's place. So when I when we went around <laughs> there, I had something in the fridge to grab, and you know it was you know, great on a on a warm day. Look, I guess that brings us around to that question then of. Now that we've spoken about all those sort of big bits of the puzzle, that leaves us with the properly independent beers. And what are you seeing in terms of the numbers, both of individual brands and I guess just those headline figures of are there more, are there less? It sounds like we're seeing expansions in some. Is that expansion coming, say, at the cost of the collective uh, type beers? uh, Or is it that there's actually just less genuinely independent beers out there? Um, overall, um, so if I, uh, I've, my, the charts on my website, um, measure 
I've, I've tried to measure um, indie in two ways, um, so or three ways actually. So I've tried to do it in terms of like all indie brands. So that's not IBA membership. Um, so that would include Coopers. Yep. Um, and then to look at it from IBA only, um, but also just to sort of um, also provide a, an easy way for the um, the visitors to the website to look at the sunburst charts and they can actually see all of that for themselves and they can see how that feeds down. But in 2020, there were, so 56% of this particular BWS's craft beer fridge was indie. So that's the sort of the individual indie brands, Coopers, and the collectives that were regarded as indie as well. Yep. Um, flash forward to 2023, and there's now 37% of the fridge. Um, you know, I mentioned that the, the collectives have gone, Fermentum was acquired. Um, Coopers has been consistent across all of that, um, yep. which says something about the um, longevity of that brand. Absolutely. Um, but in terms of the individual brands, it's changed a little bit too. I mean, there are a couple of surprises even for me um, this year. Like O'Brien's, um, for people who know, um, I, I'm probably more familiar with because O'Brien or Rebellion Brewery is based in Ballarat. Yep. Um, so their beer appeared in the fridge alongside two bays. So you've got two gluten-free offerings um, amongst the independents. Um, heaps normal now with uh, their lager and their their pale. So, you know, that's where there's been sort of um, growth from the independent brands. Uh, and um, like Colonial's been pretty consistent. Um, and, and the others, have, have, have most of them have dropped off from maybe they might have had two or three brands to now having one or two. Um, like Moondog, I think, has only got Old Mate. Um um, Young Henry's has only got um, actually Young Henry's doesn't have it wasn't Newtowner it was their hazy one I can't remember what that's, that's called. interesting yeah, yeah. Right. Um, which you know says a lot about that just hazy pale ales in general because it's just nice to segue into of course the other beer that is in the fridge there now at BWS that wasn't there before is status quo yes um, yeah so mountain culture for those playing along at home yeah yes <laughs> um. But yeah, uh, it, and then and as, as I said, I don't think I, I don't think we said at the beginning, but um, I, I, while it might be a, a given, obviously this is like one store. Yeah. Um, so when I say that in this particular store, Bridge Road, Bent Spoke, um, and a couple of other really well-known brands are not there anymore, that is probably only at this store and I and I, I, I don't doubt that um, they're still available in others although much to my um, disappointment Beechworth Pale does seem to be a little bit less um, easy to find in, in 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 some spaces absolutely look I think it's a really sort of fascinating thing and as you say I'm sure that people will be able to contact us and say this is what there is you know in my one and that that doesn't reflect that but nonetheless overall, there's a clear trend when you when you sort of look at numbers. What were you saying from you know the high fifties dropping to the low or to the high thirties in yeah. the space of three or four years? I mean that's whatever it is. That's a third of the market changing in that period of time. Um, and presumably, if you were to extrapolate it with the actual numbers of units sold, yeah, it probably looks that would look even more pronounced. I would think that yes. Um... 
yeah, th- I mean, there's there's some, some some things that I'd love to be able to do in addition to what I have done. I mean, um, considering whether the I, I'm assuming that a, a, a chain like BWS has got planograms for their fridge, so they'll be you know their, their products will be placed um, depending on where they're probably going to perform the best. Um, you know. Or where brands. they've got a deal to put them, which is fine. Again, I'm not trying to make that. Sound yes, like yes. Some... And actually, that actually reminded me. I came. I mentioned Culture House before. That was a really interesting one. So Culture House, it's a Pinnacle Drinks brand um, that did a raspberry Blunavice, mm. um, which, while the branding was very different, was um, clearly an attempt to capitalise on the market from Boat Rock and Miss Pinky. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this culture house brand has um strangely enough it's not in the fridge anymore either but miss pinky is gone there's no boat rocker in there anymore um you know is that a coincidence let the listeners decide for themselves look look absolutely and look you know again that's what we're really suggesting that people do is to go and read the full article uh at beerreflections.com.au uh see all of the data there's some fantastic like we could talk for hours about this there's so yeah. much data in there i think it's fascinating because what it does do really clearly is capture a moment in time yep and some of those brands that you're saying aren't there anymore almost wouldn't occur to me that they're not there unless you actually can sort of see directly that was there four years ago it's not there now Otherwise, you just sort of stop thinking about them. They don't stay in your consciousness if they're not in front of you every day of the week. Yeah. The other thing, uh, the the thing that occurred to me to say just before too was um, you asked what my, what the goal was uh, in the original piece and that was perhaps to, to show that local level was a bit disingenuous. I think that and I titled my second piece in the series "Beware of Greeks Bearing Gifts," being a reference to the tra- Trojan Horse. And you know, I, I have some comfort in saying it absolutely was a Trojan Horse. You've <laughs> Pinnacle Drinks um, or Endeavour Drinks Group by stocking all these indie brands, they get all of the data on how they sell. Yeah, they don't share it with the breweries. They don't need to, but they have all that data for themselves. They can see what's doing well, and they can use that to emulate those products if they choose to do so. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And look, I guess the question is, now that you've made those observations, where do you see things going this year? And, you know, as, you, as your article itself does, and I know that you've done this in each of them, you know, what's the sort of positive or what's the what's the takeaway out of this for those of us that love genuinely craft and independent beers i think that it's difficult to tell because there was a change in the numbers in in the fridge of this particular store last uh um, in 2022 but at least the data that i have shows um a tapering off a plateauing of of this change in the um the landscape uh you know it would be um it would be nice if more people bought indie beer over over the others but you know i'm, I'm not gonna I'm, i will never be one to say that um you know indie beer or choosing indie beer is um 
um, a choice for quality because even the Pinnacle Drinks brands are objectively well-made. They're made by um, a, a um, yeah by a, um, a brewery that's geared up and set up to make quality beer. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I'll still choose independent over any of them. Yeah. Look, that's I think the message again is that you know choose independent if you can, choose independent bottle shops if you can, and the analogy. Well, the extrapolation from that two bird story is just clear that you know if you want these things to exist, you've got to support them along the way. Yes, um, because once people hit the wall, and we know it's tough in the industry at the moment, I guess this is just another illustration of some of the headwinds that people are battling into. Yeah, I hope that twenty twenty four provides there's some relief in twenty twenty four, and we don't have a repeat of twenty twenty three. But I think that, as I said in my article, I think the smart breweries are bracing for more of the same. Um, that is very much what we hear. Again, the fascinating discussions that we had out at the Williamstown Beer and Cider Festival late last year, where we probably had eight or nine breweries on, each for about 15, 20 minutes. And most of them had some version of the same story about how they're trying to adapt to quite a yeah. different marketplace and a, and a marketplace which is... Uh, not the happy hunting ground that perhaps the time during COVID was when people were shopping a lot more, shopping directly with breweries and um, and being willing to buy more weed and wonderful beers. Yeah. Uh, and the other, perhaps the other thing I would say too would be if you can, if you have one close to you, buy from an independent bulk shop. Buy direct from the brewery. Absolutely. Yeah. Or from your local podcast that also sells. Beer. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I had to get that bit in. Daniel, look, thanks so much for your time tonight, mate. It's a genuinely fantastic bit of work that you've done here. Beerreflections.com.au. Check it out. And look, aside from anything else, I'm sure we will have you back on the show to talk about future episodes and future bits of work like this. Um, but we can catch you at the Bendigo on the Hop Festival on August 31. Yes. Yep. Awesome, mate. Thank you for this bit of work. Thank you for the work you do with the Bendigo crew. And we'll look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you for all the work you do. Okay, look, I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Daniel. Looking forward to having him on the show again in the future. Lots of interesting things there. Look, just a very quick reminder before we get underway with the second part of our show with Maz that there's some pretty fruity language in there, uh, and if that's the kind of thing that you don't enjoy, probably best to give it a miss. Uh, but lots of interesting things to talk about with Maz, and let's get underway with that episode right now. I press the button. We're going to get underway with talking West get us, Coast. Get us back online. I've got a rant. Absolutely. Get us back online. I, I feel like I can actually almost see you physically inflating because of the size of the rant that you've got. Get, get us back online. Let's let's talk West Coast. You've already given us a good lead into this, uh, as we've spoken about uh, your love of this style. This is not not just the style. This specific beer is the love of my beer life. Tell us its origin story. If I had to be monogamous to any beer, this would be the beer. Um, the origin of this beer was, you know what, and, and this is credit to Alex Lovelock. This beer is an Alex Lovelock baby that he's nurtured and, and um, 
curated over the years and improved and fucking this is this is this is the perfect example when you have to brew a core a, a beer time and time and time again rather than every other day brewing something new and getting away with it when you have to consistently brew the same beer all the time you're tweaking and perfecting it over the years you're just for tiny tweak ah maybe a touch more bitterness oh no i went too much uh, maybe a bit different salts this time just to see what happens and this is this beer has very subtly changed ever so slightly over the years and it, it's just this journey we're on to perfect this beer and i i think i think it's the most amazing beer that we we make at hawkers i love this beer and it's it it's yeah it's it's a uh, huh it won the trophy best best ipa um in which competition just so aibas i'm not I, yeah look have you have you picked up the trophy yet no the, this this one i did the aibas i'm very conscious of it um i i love the aibas because i think they they incorporate for me the aibas are a, a genuine international award because they have the big mainstream breweries they have international brewers attending you have an international judge panel that's attending so you have that opportunity to compete against the best of the best in the industry um and the fact that we, this beer won the most entered uh, category against world competition says a lot to me um I do have rants about competitions. I That was that's what's known in the cricket world as a slow full full toss, brother. Yeah, so I mean, look, I I like competitions when they're based on blind tasting and and beer judges. Here we go. One of the fuckwits of reservoir passing right now. Oh, actually, he's off to a sleeping bag competition. Yeah, uh, it's not that bad actually. We we just we just just out on a poor guy in a big four-wheel gas-guzzling, environmentally unfriendly prick. Anyway, um, so I I like competitions when you have certified judges who know what they're doing, tasting your beer blind, because you get a general a genuine feedback, which gives you an objective feedback as to where you're standing vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the field. If there are any faults in your beer, what's going on? I'm not really keen on popularity contests. I, I appreciate what Gabs has done for the industry by making it popular and getting people engaged, and it's a fun event. I just don't put much weight onto it personally. I care more about certified beer judges and their opinion. I certainly don't give a shit when when people rant online on fucking Facebook groups. Sometimes you know, like what qualifies you to to judge a beer, right? And and. There, there always seems to be this, this, this kind of belittling of Australian beer. Nine years ago, I was the first to belittle Australian beer because our standards weren't up there. But I think Australia today has a bunch of breweries that are brewing fantastic beers. And a lot of them are doing amazing things in the fields that they special. I mean, Wildflower, as a wild example, does amazing sours, right? Um, Boatrockers constantly been doing great barrel-aged beers. Lots of them. The Wheaty in Adelaide. I, I, I mean, I can name hundreds of them right down to the smallest level. I mean, the Wheaty in Adelaide has a tiny, tiny, tiny little brew house. Yet, 
the amount of care that goes into making that beer is just fucking phenomenal. It blows my brain, right? There's a lot of people who are super passionate. There's 7,000 of us who are going through a really, really difficult year. 2023 has been an incredibly difficult year for, for brewing in Australia. And the last thing we need to put up with is some dickhead on, on, on a Facebook group uh, talking shit about beer, right? Sorry, and I, and I understand everyone has an opinion. Yeah, but everyone has an opinion like everyone has an asshole. Who cares, right? And, and as brand owners, we have to sit there and cop it, sure. I get it and I don't want to be a hashtag and I don't want my brand canceled because I have 50 people who work here and ultimately I care, I have to bite my tongue. But it seems like an unfair advantage to the person talking shit sometimes, right? You can't call them out the way you really want to call them out um, because you are conscious that you also don't want to be condescending and patronizing and aggressive and everyone needs to have their fucking five, five minutes in, 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 of fame on, on the internet. And there is something a bit different, isn't there, between people who have just started their craft beer journey and perhaps get onto some of those pages and think that's the norm. Yes. As opposed to people who are the bad role models on those pages for... It, it seems to be like the, the, the trend of these tickers. I mean, if anyone gets a chance, there is a, there's a film, a documentary done uh, ages ago called Beer Tickers. It's, it's before Untapped was even a thing. Uh, in Britain, there was these, this group of people who used to walk around with a list of beers and go to festivals and sample them and tick them off, right? And so it was a thing how many beers you could tick off in a year. Um, the, the, there's a, there seems to be this trend right now of people trying to buy the most exotic, weird, one-off beers that they can, and money is not, a, not an issue. Great. If that's your shtick, fucking great. That doesn't make you a certified beer judge, right? You know, when someone like, and I'm going to use an example because it's fresh today. I, I value beer judges, right? Because they are trained to pick up off flavors. They are trained to identify what the style guidelines. As a beer drinker, you can identify, I like this beer, I don't like this beer but you are not qualified to judge whether that beer is in that style and representative of that style, unless you've done beer judging or, or, or you're a Cicerone, right? So when someone like Gordon uh, Strong, who is basically the man who wrote the BJCP judging guidelines, he is the head judge at the World Beer Cup, the head judge at GBAF. He fucking heads the committee on, on beer judging. He is one of the most acknowledged beer judges in the world. When he tastes an Australian barley wine and says, this is sublime, this is some of the best barley wine I've tasted anywhere in the world, that is an opinion I value. Some dickhead online, don't care. Don't fucking care. And it's not cool because there are a lot of people in the background who have put passion into this, who have had a hard year this year who are struggling to make ends meet, who have just come out of two years of COVID, who also have had two hard years. And just before that, we had floods and fucking bushfires as well. So the industry for the last five years has been a shit show. People trying to make ends meet. They don't need this crap. And, and, might I add, this is where my rant against the government this year comes. Fuck the government. Hang on, I was going to mark it as a time thing because... Uh, <laughs> 
You know, that's yeah, it's just like if all you want to hear is Mez's opinion about the government and not just the Tasmanian government, uh, go to 48 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, in in this economic crisis, beer in Australia. First of all, when I moved to Australia, one of the big cultural icons, what it meant to be Australian, was beer, right? It's it's part of, and and. and Part of the DNA of who we are as Australians. Having a pint is part of who we are. And for years, we've had a duopoly in the industry, Lion Nathan versus CUB, which is Asahi versus Kiran, which if you take it one step further is fucking Mitsubishi versus Asahi. And, and ironically, Asahi is the, is the biggest brewer in 10 East European countries. Because obviously that's where Japanese beer originated. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and you know, CUB has been kicked around like a like a like a bad pair of undies. Um, it was owned by Saab Miller. Is that what you do with your bad pairs of undies? Kick them around? Probably. I mean, this is again, this is not a dig at at the people there. CUB has some of the best people in the industry. Like genuinely, one of one of the best. Beer tasters out there happens to be the, the head of, of sensory at CUB. Someone who, a lady who has brought more to beer in Australia and more to quality control. Uh, I have endless respect for some of the people who work there, right? And this is not a dig at the people. You, when I talk about this, I separate the people. And it's not small versus big. It's the practices of the big guys who are preventing us small guys from having a fair go. And the other thing I learned about Australia is everyone gets a fair go. It's in our fucking national anthem, right? Uh, and we don't have a fair go because of tap contracts, because of the big guys blocking us off the shelf. You walk into a Dan Murphy's, who has been supportive during COVID or a Coles, and these guys have their own home brands that are abundantly taking disproportionate market share on the shelf. I get it, it's their, it's their beers. It's their shelf, but it's blocking the 800 or so little guys who hire 70% of the people who work in this industry. The whole reason we are here, our reason d'etre as craft brewers is because we got fed up of shit beer. We got fed up of commoditization of beer. And somehow in Australia, because of the government's la lack of ability or willingness to help ha give us a fair go, it's, it's sickening. And it's been the same case for the last eight years. The problem now is over the last two years, they have increased excise on us, 12.8%. Under the guise that they follow CPI. Alcoholic beverages are 5% of the CPI basket that's used to calculate CPI. So they're fucking increasing taxes on the thing that they're trying to fight the increase in. And to put this into perspective for everyone here, Hawkers last year paid $2.8 million in excise. Over the last eight years of our existence, we've paid 20 to $30 million in just excise. Add on top of that another eight to $10 million of GST. On top of that payroll tax, we are the second highest price of beer in the world after Singapore. This is after Dubai dropped their alcohol and, and Dubai had a religious reason. I am a Muslim originally, and I can talk about this shit freely. So even, even a Muslim regulation dropped 
tax on, on alcohol. So I don't understand why the government in Britain, they have to excise during this economic crisis because breweries were going bust. So these people have increased our excise 12.8%, which all of a sudden, as hawkers, we have to come up with $300,000, $350,000 more a year in taxes. On top of that, our Victorian government was the last one to fall. I'm grateful to the Victorian government that they were the last one to fall. I still think it's a, it's a fucking charade. The whole CDS, Container Deposit Scheme. 30 years ago, this was introduced in South Australia to, introduce, to, to encourage people to recycle. We are recycling in the yellow bins. We don't need the fucking CDS. Every carton of beer that you now pay, you now buy, is three and a half dollars of taxes that we pay. So that you can go and collect a dollar sixty. I'm not talking out of school. Just go to the CDS page in New South Wales. In New South Wales alone, the the, the scheme cost a hundred and sixty-six million dollars a year to administer. This isn't when they're, what they're paying back to the consumer. It's costing $450 million of additional indirect taxes that they don't call taxes. $166 million is being wasted on fuckwits who are calculating how many cans went through the system and who to pay what. Right? And then they, get, they have the audacity to tell us that they gave money away to charity. You're taxing me. And then pretending you're paying me to pick out of the garbage bin that was already going to be recycled and for me to hand deliver it. And what's happening at the end of the streaming line? It's not going into a canning recycling. We're, we're putting it back into the same stream where the yellow bins used to go. By their numbers, our, our, our recycling has only gone up 2% of cans. And I call bullshit on that because no one was actually measuring what was going into the, recy into the recycle bins. I think Australians are intelligent human beings who want to do the right thing by the environment and we all try and separate our garbage. We don't need to create, and uh, this is not a racial slur, it's, it is because it is something that has been identified in economics, the Mumbai garbage um, picking culture from trying to create that recycling bin. It, again, this is a, a term in economics that, that actually was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, talking about creating a, 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 an, an artificial um, secondary market of picking out of garbage, right? We don't need to create this. Our people are already trying to do the right thing. So we've created this immensely inefficient system. And just so you know, they still have the time to run around like fucking Nazis and police what's on the shelf. As hawkers, ever since this came around, we get emails from New South Wales going, ah, we found this product that you haven't registered and paid registration fees for. Oh yeah? Which one? Your 2016 bourbon barrel-aged Imperial Stout has come back into our system and we, we, you haven't registered it. Because you weren't around, you dumb fucks. <laughs> on that note, on that note, like last week, the most recent podcast that we've had that's gone out was uh, Willie the Boatman. Uh, we hope that Albo tuned in to listen to that one about Albo's beer. And hopefully he will just continue streaming these. And, with all, and we'll with all due respect to Albo, Albo sold the craft brewers the dream of, yeah, I'm on your side. Fucking man up and do your thing already. I'm done with politicians talking shit. And this is not an against labor. I voted labor. Just so everyone knows, I am a business owner who's a tree-hugging lefty. 
because I think the libs are even fucking worse. The, the, the Australian politics are two parties that every time they get into power, spend the next four years talking shit about the guy who was there before them. None of them actually get up and do anything. So, so fucking grow a pair of balls and fucking help an industry that's struggling. Because it is your policy. So we went, we, I was talking about CDS. CDS, on top of the 350,000 that we have to come up with every year for, for um, excise, we sell 300,000 cartons of beer a year. Now we have to pay a million and 50,000 dollars extra in shitty tax. So all of a sudden, over the last two years, never mind the increase in our malt cost, never mind the increase 90% in our energy costs, cans increasing, shipping. It used to cost me 180 bucks to ship a pallet up to Queensland. Now it's $500. Mm. It costs me $37 to ship from my Queensland warehouse to one of my Queensland customers. $37 a carton in some areas in Queensland. I tried to ship shit via Australia Post. We try and hold directly $10 if you're above 100 bucks, zero. I promise you, sometimes I pay 60% of that, whatever you pay me, to Australia Post to ship, right? Despite all of this, so for, for us to come up with that 1.5 million additional taxes that the government has for no reason increased on us, it's not like it cost them more to administer excise, they're already the high, second highest in the world. I have to sell $6 million more of beer just to pay the additional taxes. Which one of you increased their consumption? I know. And, and, and you know what? It is not fair to ask the consumer to do more because the consumer is already struggling to make ends meet. With interest rates and mortgages and everything else going hard, it is not fair to continue to ask people with diminishing household incomes to come out and support the little guy. It's, it's, it's just not fair. It's the government's job to support this industry that is at risk. The IBA, which by the way, we are now officially out of the IBA and we will no longer be participating in the Indies. Now let's move on to that in a moment, but let's finish the government bit. But, but let's the IBA yeah. did a survey of their breweries. 60% of respondents said they are at risk of closing down because of government stupidity and policy. The government, the, their way of washing their hands of tackling a difficult issue, which is equating excise for wine, beer, and, and spirits, said, all right, we're going to give you $350,000 excise rebate. What that created is it basically all the brew pubs in Australia don't pay tax. If you sell less than 150,000 liters of beer, you basically pay no excise, right? Well, great. I am all for encouraging brew pubs, but I think that excise rebate should be for brew pubs that sell beer on their premises, right? If you're packaging beer and selling it outside, there should be no cost advantage to you versus everyone else because what that does is it kills the middle of the field. Because the CUBs of the world don't give a fuck. They have so much scale, it doesn't really matter. Their production cost is zero. Like, like they buy in so much bulk and produce so many liters efficiently, they don't care. And then having a next tier, which suddenly doesn't need to pay excise for 150,000 liters, creates an artificial drive. Well, it's not costing me anything, even if I sell this keg for 150 bucks. That's jam on top. We're killing our middle tier industry that really is the driving force be, be, behind craft beer. 
And, and the reason they did this was they don't want to piss off the wine lobby. Because if they equate excise, you, either your wine goes up or your beer goes down. But at least we will have an equal footing in the market. When, you're, when your pocket is being pinched, you're downgrading from craft beer to cheap whatever is in the fucking discount bin. Or you're buying wine because you're getting more bang for your buck. And the reason you're getting more bang for your buck, because wine is 90% cheaper in, on, on, on the taxation than some of the beer in some cases. And that is not fair. Let's wrap that up there. You've made a lot of good points in that one there. Uh, and hopefully, and genuinely, we'll see if we can get that voice heard uh, more out there. Let's return to the happy topic of West Coast IPA. West Coast IPA. Fuck, I love this beer. Um, <laughs> and so, and let's, let's particularly, we're going to round out, we're going to move on to the stat in a minute, but I didn't want to move off before talking about, you said there's always tweaks. Were there particular tweaks in 2023? And how do you think the style is being generally received in 2023? It's funny because you had that haze craze and, and people are coming back to the West Coast. And it's like you jump on all the beer threads and this has become kind of the benchmark West Coast in Australia, which is great. And, mm. and I, I mean, it, it's really, it's, it's very humbling because a lot of people, we've now released the double West Coast, which is literally the same ingredient ingredients just jacked up. And people have comp compared that to being better than Pliny the Elder, which when I was mm. getting into this industry, Pliny the Elder was one of my favorites. And I do and I do humbly agree. I genuinely think a fresh double West Coast is better than a fresh Pliny the Elder. We are, yeah, but bigger batch. So the comment that came from the audience was a bigger batch. Yeah, well, you know, you know, you know, you know what made, you know what made the West Coast? Here's a true story. So years ago, West Coast was part of our core range. And I don't know what about being part of the core range. People just assumed it was there and didn't buy it. So everyone spoke highly of it. It just didn't sell very well. And then we moved it to being seasonal because I was fed up of having to slow sell the West Coast. I didn't want to keep stock. I wanted this beer is meant to be fresh. And so we would wait till we ran out of stock and before we brew the next batch. And people lost their shit. <laughs> it's as if I killed their, their newborn, right? The people just fucking the amount of hate mail about taking away their West Coast. And I wasn't taking away their West Coast. All I did was I waited till we were out of the batch before I brewed the next one, which gave us a two week window that allowed the market to clear out whatever they had on the shelf. And we were more selective in the places that we sold our West Coast. That drove demand. West Coast this year, in the worst year for craft beer that I can certainly remember, mm. is up 86%. Wow. And it's not because of additional distribution. It is including in distribution points which traditionally would not be West Coast. You wouldn't ping them for being West Coast, but it's, it's flying in the nationals. I mean, at, at, that, at Dan's, for example, we're not adding, it's not national. It's just in Victoria, but it's still up significantly. And it's crazy because I love this beer and I'm what's so the, fucking what's happy. What's that about? I mean, it's not, I mean, it's a magnificent beer, but that's always been the case. Why, why the, what's happening in the market? And, and, and you know the irony of it. It is the most boring ass beer from an ingredient perspective. <laughs> we use Southern Cross. This is, this is primarily the shiny, shiny hop in it. It's not Mosaic, it's not Citra, it's not Galaxy, it's not your usual suspect. It's an old school New Zealand hop that most New Zealand brewers have discounted. 
and it's the one that that's give, gives it that unique character. And, so, so, he, so what and is it's it? Alex Lovelock. He's a fucking Kiwi. They come here. They take our jobs. These people. <laughs> um, and it, actually, his partner, shout out to her, is is in the is in the Victorian government, and they've tried to resist the CDS trend for as long as possible. And I have to admit, the Victorian government has been mostly very supportive of craft beer and small business up at least the side of the north because i remember in the early days when when i moved to to australia i could have sworn i'd move us off this but sure <laughs> no no because because credit is credit is look credit is is due where credit is in in our early days when we moved up here and i i was an angry lebanese guy i still am an angry lebanese so that that's the angry side of me and 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 credit to the australian uh, well, yeah. Well, the the problem is Aussies are so fucking nice. They've tamed me. It's really hard to be angry. Um, genuinely, like, yeah, you know, Australia has a bad reputation about about how how we're casually racist and all that shit. But genuinely, once you get to meet Aussies, they are the most supportive, welcoming community I have ever met. I have genuinely never felt this uh, when i land in melbourne i feel like i'm landing at home i genuinely feel i am at home i feel peaceful i feel i'm landing back with my people and i feel i can't be deported so good thing um i can be incarcerated but not deported so the, so so when I, when i came up here and we were starting up we were struggling for cash flow in the early days and the and the victorian government identified us in an area and and they they approached us to give us an, uh, a manufacturing uh, grant that bought a lot of the equipment that allowed us to grow to scale, helped us. They said, if you come up with 50% of the money, we'll give you 50% on the condition you meet these job requirements, you create so many jobs, blah, blah, blah. And, the, and we did, and it was a great partnership. And, and so I am eternally grateful that there are good, good eggs in the government and they try to do some of the good stuff. But the fundamental shit that's there needs to be addressed and we, we need a government that has the balls to do it. So looking at you, Albo. We'll, we'll get on to that. I mean, the good news for you, Maz, is that my mother taught Jacinta Allen in Bendigo sometime in the late 1980s. My mother, admittedly at 93, doesn't have a great love of Victoria's craft beer industry, but I will see whether through my mum we can communicate to Jacinta some of the things that are going on, uh, or we can try and circumvent that and make and, that and process. It, it, it is important. I mean, as a Victorian, sorry if you're not a Victorian listening to this, but as a Victorian, Victoria is the home of beer, coffee, food. We're very proud about Absolutely. these things. And we, we've had Good Beer Week, Gab's originated here. And because of the pressure on craft beer, the other states that have been more proactive, I'm looking at Queensland with their governmental policy to encourage craft beer, they, they, we're losing our footing and our front-facing front uniqueness of Victoria. So we need a bit of TLC over here. And not the band. Let's move on because I can see out there, oh no, that's the thing that causes controversy out of everything that's been said tonight. I can see out there in the crowd, people are pouring the stout. I've done the same. Let's uh, talk stout. This is our unsung hero. If you actually log on, this, this beer wins gold medals every fucking year. It really does. 
So talk us through it. Give and, us the history. What's the story behind it? And and the funny thing about this beer is we entered one day. Um, I can't remember who fucked us up, but but I th we entered. We entered. Is that, is that code for you? And I, <laughs> pro probably. But just to show you how solidly brewed this beer is, um, we accidentally one year had a fresh batch and we had some old stock that w was in retention. And we accidentally pulled out 10-month-old beer and entered it into the AIBAs and it still won a gold medal. <laughs> and it w That is how solid this beer is. I love this beer. Uh, I hate the fact that in Australia we have this culture of, oh, it's sunny, it's not time for a start. Fuck off. <laughs> Every day is start day, people. Every fucking day is start day. Listen, you infidels, drink your start. So tell us what we're getting in the glass. What should we be tasting for everyone who's here tonight? So Put you're your nosing. What should they be smelling? What should you're they gonna, be seeing? You're going to pick up a lot of nut, a lot of coffee, a lot of chocolate, um, a lot of caramel. It, it's, it's rich without being heavy. Um, it's 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 an easy sipper. It's only five point whatever five point six five point four five point four yeah uh, five point six five point six I'm gonna say five point six from memory five point four I'm blind five point four it's on the can fucking blind it comes with age I have to wear glasses now stop it this is ageism anyway um, I love the beer and and we now make it on nitro but it's it's hard because people think of St. Paddy's and they think Guinness. Fucking drink local Aussie beers on Nitro. Anyway, um, again, this is this is one of my favorite stouts. I love this beer. Uh, and it, it was the basis for our Imperial stout. So the, our love of stout hopefully translates into this one. What it's, should people be seeing in this that does translate to those Imperial stouts? Well, I mean, it's just a, it's the same kind of flavor. We put a lot of care into our stouts, as, as many of you may or may not know. Um, we, there's a meme on, that I was reminded of today. When I release Imperial stouts, they're 17 in a fortnight, so give me your money. Last year it was 20. Um, Hawker seems to have settled into this pattern of being famous for our West Coast, our stouts, um, our white stouts, our barley wines, and our lagers. I think we're getting way better our, at our hazies, but there's a lot more still churn in the market of what's new, what's crazy, uh, what's next. That seems to be stuck in the hazy world uh, much more. Uh, I, I like our stats. I like this one. I, I, I'm happy to drink it any day of the week. It's really delicious, even in the middle of summer. It yes. actually feels like a perfect time of night as the uh, as the uh, as yeah the, the sun sky goes the sky the sky is getting dark, so we can drink stuff. We're authorized <laughs> to drink stuff. Um, has this recipe changed much over the years? No, actually, in no. This hasn't really changed much. This has been a, a quite a constant because it's very much mold driven, so it it needs less tweaking um, along the way. But um, yeah, it's great. You, you touched before on the meme of, you know, I don't release barrel-aged stouts, but when I do, I release 17 in a week kind of thing. Um, you're known for the big series and you're known for those, but we hear from other brewers that you know, part of that market has gone off a bit. There's not sort of as much money out there for big, expensive beers. Do you see a bit of a return to sort of really well-made 
cheaper stamps? No, I think th I think what you will see is people have a more limited budget to spend on these beers, right? There is a there is a definite economic crunch that's being felt by consumers everywhere, and and I don't think people have gone off these beers. Um, I I genuinely don't. I think that you you'll see this with the limited release beers. I think people have gone off experimenting with beers that are super expensive, right? Um, I don't really want to try another hazy from a brewery that may be hit or miss to me and spend 15 to $20 doing it. But I'm more than happy to go and buy from a brewery that I trust. A at the worst case scenario, is going to hit the mark for me. Um, so we haven't seen a slowdown in our limiteds. Knock on wood, we're still seeing significant growth this year. It, 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 it feels like survivor's guilt for me a bit because a lot of people are really doing it hard out there. Mm. Most brewers in the market are down last year. You know, the numbers I hear are between 20 and 40%. If you're lucky, you're less than 20%. We closed the year up 15%. This doesn't mean shit on profitability. We lost so much money last year. The, the actual business, and we're a very well-run business. We felt the pain. So I understand the pain of people going into administration. And I know there's a lot of shitbagging people who do crowdfunding. I agree some of these valuations are crazy, but some of these valuations come from the fact that in the old days, the likes of Asahi and, and Lion and these guys were paying those valuations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, something is worth as much as something is willing to pay for it. If you don't think that valuation is worthwhile, don't pay for it. And so these breweries are going to the only places where they find an ability to tap capital markets. They're tapping their, their, their consumers. Most of the time, some, some of the investors are actually looking for a return. Some of them just are happy to pitch in and support their local craft brewer and get a discount at the bar. Whatever it is, it's a hard year for brewers out there. Um, and so when we talk about limiteds going off and limiteds being in, in decline, there definitely is. We haven't felt it maybe a bit in the barrel releases. I'm not, I don't brew beers because they sell. I brew beers because I fucking enjoy brewing them and I like drinking them. And sometimes I brew beers that I just want to have for myself and I don't care. <laughs> Case in point, coffee and cardamom, imperial stout. <laughs> Aquavit doubles and farmhouses and Aquavit wheat wines and fucking barley wines. Barley wines are finally starting to sell out in Australia. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Fucking revelation. <laughs> For years we made barley wines, they never sold. Dead set. Yeah, everyone here bought them, thanks. There's 4,000 liters left in the back. So, so, so you know, it, one of, the, one of the people in the audience today is Tony Perkin. Tony Perkin used to be our CFO, and, and he passed on the torch to Chris Fissenden, who is, who I have grown to love as a brother, and, and he, he puts up with a lot of the shit that I have to do. And Tony used to hold that shit bag. I, I brew beers that the CFOs go, why the fuck are you doing this again? <laughs> we could use our money in so many different ways. We really don't need this crap. We could actually do something with these beers. We could like market the other beers that sell, but I don't. We brew at Hawkers. We brew stuff that we like brewing. Uh, we buy ingredients that don't make sense. We buy barrels from places that don't make sense. We pay way more than we should for things, 
but because we like what we do. I reckon you've set the stage nicely for the next beer we're going to go on to. And I'm asking you a question which you can feel free genuinely not to answer, but you just said there, sort of 15%, you know, expansion for the gear just gone, and yet probably running at a loss. That's not just about buying zany barrels or something like no, that. No, no, no. How is it? So ha- I want people to get a bit of an insight into how hard it is to make money in this industry. Well, you, 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 first of all, you need to think of how the margins down the line happen. So if you think, all right, let's, let's take a carton of Pale Ale or Rover at 60 bucks, just as an average number. So take away three and a half dollars of that is CDS. This is container deposit scheme. Then take away... 15 to 16 bucks of that as excise. Possibly more if it's a higher ABV beer. So your 20 bucks out of that $60 that you just paid at the shop have already gone to taxes. Take another 10% in GST, that's six bucks. You've taken $26 out of your $60 carton in taxes. We haven't even touched anything. 30, 20, 20 to 30% depending on how you split it in singles and four packs and what. If you sell it all in multi-packs, it's 35 to 40. If you sell it in singles, it's 45 to 50. If you sell it as a carton, it's somewhere between 15 and 25% to the bottle shop. So on average, let's call it another 25% of that is the bottle shop because they have to pay rent, they have to pay their people, they have to pay their services, yada, yada, yada. So out of your $60, 25% is your bottle shop. That's what is that? 12 bucks? On top... 15 call, says the economist at the bank. Call, of the call it 12 bucks at 20%, right? Just, just, just for fuck's sake. So, so we, we've done $25 of taxes, 12 bucks to the bottle shop, $37. Logistically, getting it from my warehouse to a third-party logistics warehouse, getting it from that third-party logistics to the to the retailer is going to cost me another seven to ten percent in distribution costs, so that's another six bucks. So that's. Do you see where the story is going? Off the sixty dollar carton, I haven't paid rent. I haven't paid for cans. I haven't paid for staff. I haven't paid anything. So insurance. So, and I'm talking about that cost, that cost of distribution if I'm distributing in Victoria. If I send it out to another state, I'm fucked. And I'm trying to maintain a national price range because ultimately I'm trying to grow craft beer to all the consumers. This, this for me is, is, is the Bible I'm trying to preach. I'm an atheist myself. So my religion is, is trying to trying to promote flavor. My dad was a member of parliament and his obsession was with was creating food and drinks for people because he saw, he said that is the noblest thing a human being can do because we are providing sustenance to others. Everything else doesn't matter. You you can you know, you need sex, air, water and food. Really as a human being, right? And social. Social this is a PG-rated conversation. Oh, no, it's not. We fucking lost that one ages ago. Um, so so it, it's hard out there. So if you're working 
even if you're working on a theoretical 30% margin, which, which never happens, any fluctuation in the cost of your raw materials dramatically impacts what you can do, right? And you can't continuously try and pass this cost on to your consumers because it doesn't work that way. Every, uh, the other day, we got informed that our CO2 is going up and our cam prices are mm. going up. And I can't pass this cost on except every six months under the guise of the CDS CPI. Uh, sorry, not the CDS, the excise price increase. And, and that's when the national chains allows me to, allow me to. And even then, we need justification. So we can't keep passing on this cost because you guys un are under cost pressure as well. So we wear that cost for six months before we can even do anything about it. And by the time we do it, it's an old story. I studied economics with a great um, South African economist who was actually married to the cousin of Nelson Mandela and who spent time in apartheid prison. And the first thing he taught us in economics is economics is a lagger. Whenever you do a policy, you don't immediately see the impact of economics. It's usually six months down the line, the next government that, reeks, that gets that rewards, right? Or if you do a shit thing, it's the next government that gets that. And that's why it's very hard to get these politicians motivated to do anything good for us, because it'll show up in the next guy's balance sheet, and that's what they don't want. Um, so whenever we're dealing with costs of cans or costs of beer, we can't chase you guys for more money all the time. I reckon that's a perfect point to wrap up this bit of the conversation. We know we've got some really fun, exotic, rare, all of the people who've come in for their rare beers are going to get their little bit very soon. Yes. Uh, but a fantastic conversation. Thank you for your honesty and all of that. And for anyone who might be running into the Prime Minister anytime soon, again, make sure you refer this bit or, of the or, or, or your local MP or your local senator or your federal MP or whatever. Just fucking knock on every politician's door and demand free beer, free, free Britney well, and free beer. The very, the very real point out of all this, it always reminds me of those conversations that we have at the Bowls Club, where we do a speech at the end of the night and everyone says, can you turn up you know, earlier and can you make sure you stay for the speeches to the people who've already stayed for the speeches? I reckon if you're here at Hawkers tonight, I reckon if you're listening to the podcast, you probably already got the message, but the point is, you've got to tell other people if you want to make a change. Correct.